Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good morning and welcome. My name is Elizabeth Baker Keffer and I'm president of Atlantic Live and vice president of The Atlantic. And on behalf of The Atlantic and the University of California at San Diego, I wanted to welcome you to this inaugural program of The Atlantic Meets the Pacific at the horizon of te technology, energy, and health. We are delighted to be here and to be with you all and wanted to give special thanks to our founding underwriters, Chevron and Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. They've helped us a lot in getting this inaugural program off the ground. This is our first major program on the West Coast, and we uh, have gotten just such a warm welcome. Thank you all so much for that. For those of you who are at the opening dinner last night, you can attest to the fact that there are many Atlantic fans and many fans of James Fallows in this group, so we really appreciate that. Uh, in fact, one among you came up to us last night to share the fact that the Atlantic had been instrumental in connecting her with her new husband. <laughs> Apparently, she was looking for a kindred spirit, so she entered a requirement on Match.com that any potential suitor be an Atlantic reader. <laughs> and she found her man, I'm happy to say, and they're happily ever after. And just a good thing that we had not yet issued this cover story. What me marry? This is the current issue. You will collect it today. Uh, and in, in my own way, I want to thank Vivian Warren for being a matchmaker and bringing the Atlantic and the University of California, San Diego together. She introduced me to Mary Walshock and to her team, to Dan Atkinson and Edie Monk. And we are just at the early stages. We're in our honeymoon period now. And you all are here to witness that. So thank you so much. Uh, the Atlantic Meets the Pacific is the Atlantic's new foray into trying to bring our work to life, bring our editors to a platform here with top thinkers and to have a couple of dynamic days of conversation about what is just at the horizon in medicine and energy and in technology. So we're delighted that all of you are here with us to be part of that. We are uh, planning to bring the leading thinkers and doers together for these conversations and are happy to be doing that here in the research hub of San Diego, which we think of as the perfect location to experience the interdisciplinary elements that are occurring on the front line of discovery. I'm so pleased to inaugurate this uh, innovative forum together with the University of California at San Diego and wanted to thank again our founding underwriters, Chevron and Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. So with all of that housekeeping out of the way, I would uh, like to introduce the panel that will kick off our program this morning. Again, Dr. Deepak Chopra, physicist Leonard Mladeno. They will be interviewed by the Atlantic's editor-in-chief, James Bennett, about their new book, War of the Worlds, How Science and Spirituality Struggle to Seize the Future. First, a brief introduction to James Bennett. Uh, James joined the Atlantic in 2006. He is the 14th editor in the 154-year history of the Atlantic, and he has done an incredible job with us. Just during his time with The Atlantic, we have uh, seen him win Editor of the Year about two years ago. The magazine has twice been named finalist for Magazine of the Year, the only magazine to be named twice as a finalist. Uh, we've received multiple national magazine awards, and James has put a lot of his focus on TheAtlantic.com, our website. Just during his tenure, which is about six years now, the website has gone from half a million unique visitors per month to 10 million unique visitors per month. James came to us from the New York Times. He had been there for 15 years. 
He went through a variety of assignments, starting as Detroit bureau chief. He was White House correspondent during the Clinton administration. He spent three years running the Jerusalem bureau and was just about to go off to run the bureau in Beijing when we stole him away from the New York Times. A very happy day for us. Uh, James uh, cut his teeth in journalism at the Washington Monthly um, and then moved from there to the New York Times and then on to the Atlantic. He's a native Washingtonian and a graduate of Yale University and just a terrific editor-in-chief. So I welcome James Bennett, Leonard Milano, and Deepak Chopra. Thanks, Elizabeth. As, as she said, we're gathered uh, this morning to talk about the ancient contest, really, between science and spirituality uh, to explain reality, uh, or at least how we understand reality, uh, and also to help us grapple with it. Uh, arguably, science is winning this war on the ground right now, um, at least uh, given how deeply technology is woven into our lives, how much we're all counting on healthcare breakthroughs such as are uh, taking place around us here. Um, but uh, the contest for hearts and minds, it's a little less clear. I mean, to, to cite an extreme example that doesn't actually reflect the disagreement between these two authors, the polling, Pew and Gallup polling, suggests that uh, this country is pretty evenly divided between those who believe creationism explains how uh, we came to be here and those who uh, believe in the theory of evolution. Similar divide exists between uh, those who believe that humans have some responsibility for uh, global climate change and those who reject that that view. Um, We have with us, uh, as Elizabeth said, uh, uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, who is uh, trained as a physician uh, in internal medicine and as an endocrinologist. Um, he is a pioneer in the subject and renowned expert in, in the subject of, of mind-body healing and the author now of 65 books, uh, works of fiction and nonfiction. This book is his 19th bestseller. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> And I should add Dr. Mladenov's third, correct? Um, uh, He's counseled, as we know, everybody from Bill Clinton to Michael Jackson and uh, uh, is the founder of the Chopra Center for Healing. Dr. Mladenov has had a very unusual career uh, in the sciences and popular culture. He's trained as a physicist at California at Berkeley, um, uh, studying quantum field theory, Early works included uh, papers like uh, semi-classical perturbation theory for the hydrogen atom in a uniform magnetic field. A bestseller. (laughs) (laughs) Work work like that led quite naturally to a career in Hollywood uh, where he wrote for television shows like MacGyver and Night Court and Star Trek The Next Generation before moving on to video games where he was a designer and a producer and from there to children's books where he was vice president at Scholastic before making his way back to physics. He now sits at Caltech and writes books um, including The Drunkard's Walk and uh, uh, The Grand Design with Stephen Stephen Hawking. I, uh, 
understand you guys have made some progress towards agreement on the book tour, and we'll come to that in a moment. But, um, I'd like to start with something that really surprised me about reading this book, which was uh, it really felt like a war. I, I anticipated that you, you would work your way over the course of the book to broad areas of, if not agreement, at least overlap. But, but in fact, it, there is no peace at the end of the book. There's not even an armistice, or it's not clear where a, a line would be would be drawn, and so I'd like to start with a question of, of what you see as the, as the stakes. I mean, in war, the greatest fear is that the other side might win. And, and, and Dr. Chopra, I thought maybe I'd start with you. Um, uh, you conclude writing, um, one must be decisive here. A world ruled completely by science would be hell on earth. And what, what do you mean there? What, what is your concern um, about seeing a, 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 an entirely scientific view of reality um, uh, as the dominant theory? First of all, I should say I, I did want to make peace, but he wouldn't. <laughs> so, uh, I think science is a very effective and good methodology for understanding partial truth. And I mean that very respectfully. You know, science doesn't look at the world as it is. Science looks at the world as it interacts with the human nervous system and certain questions that human beings ask. Spirituality asks different questions. Who am I? Uh, What's the meaning and purpose of my existence? What does death mean to me? Is there a God? If there is, does that entity care about me? And there's other questions. How can I increase my capacity for love and have compassion? How can I have equanimity, peace of mind? Um, How can I harness my imagination, my intuition, my insight, my creativity, my free will to improve my connection with all of you, with the web of life that we call the ecosystem, and understanding my relationship with the cosmos the stardust that makes my body. My kinship with all of life, if I share DNA with microorganisms, I have a kinship through evolution with all of life, and I have a kinship with the universe. I want that to mean something to me, not intellectually, but experientially. So that's the problem. Science devoid of all that, based not on values, and I say it again respectfully, half the problems we're trying to solve, including global warming, eco-destruction, biological warfare, uh, mechanized death, these are the gifts of a science that does not have any values. Dr. Modinov, would you like to respond to that? Is it, is it I think I might, a, yeah. A of, uh, uh, um, uh, it is science denude our culture so first of I, values. I, I, well, first I think I need to give a disclaimer uh, and that is that please do not assume that whatever Deepak says, I believe the opposite. Okay, so I think there's a certain tendency. And let me start to say that I, I agree with a lot of what he just said, uh, that science, for instance, is a great method of obtaining partial truth. And so I think it's important to realize that I think no, very few scientists would disagree with that statement. Science is a methodology for understanding the physical universe for making, in particular, predictions about what will happen in the future given a certain situation or what, how the situation that we have now arose from something in the past. So science is all about uh, defining your, your, um, what, you're, what you're interested in 
and predicting what's going to happen. Now, science does not add, there are many other issues in human life that are very important, spiritual issues, issues of morality, issues of ethics, um, the mean, issues of the meaning of life, or even issues uh, that sound scientific, like where do the laws of physics come from, which science can never address, because science always starts from laws, of, laws and derives consequences. And if we explained where those laws came from, our answer would be from this other set of laws. So the, the, wherever the, the initial set of laws or principles are, or ma mathematical or physical, we can never tell where they came from. So I agree that science is a partial truth, but then the question was, is science um, hell on earth, right? So I disagree <laughs> that science is hell on earth. I, I, I don't think I was banished to hell when I became a scientist or that I was creating hell for others. I think, uh, it's, I the, think, I think it's the scientific values put us at risk of, of right, getting Right, so let me say that, that, that what science is is knowledge, okay, and... You, you, science cannot proceed by integrating uh, morality and values with research. When we study quantum electrodynamics, it is uh, not going to get us anywhere to try and incorporate ethics into that. What, what we need are, first of all, um, scientists, not science, but scientists, but more broadly, people in general, humanity, citizens, politicians especially. And I got a laugh when I said that in Washington, because I guess they know. Um, they need to have morality and spirituality, right? And the, the, of course, scientists do too, but, but I don't think it pays to single out scientists because scientists are, are discovering truth, and the truth can be applied this way or that way. There's never a way of to, to guide the truth to say we're discovering fundamental theories of the universe in a way that cannot be used for evil. If people want to use the truth that scientists discover for evil that will always be a possibility. So we need to address, I think, a more general moral and political climate in the, in the country and in the, and in the world that stops people from wanting to create weapons and biological weapons and so on. But in, in the earlier part of your remarks just now, it sounded like you were almost uh, conceding the point. I mean, do you, do you believe that there is a deeper truth that um, science is not capable of apprehending? Yeah, I do, and I, I think uh, Deepak likes to quote me from the book. What's the quote you like? He says at the end of the book, um, in a part, as part of a larger context, science does not and cannot conclude that God is an illusion, uh, which was very wonderful to read because unlike Richard Dawkins, who's, I believe, a fundamentalist in science as much as a, as a fundamentalist in religion who categorically says the God delusion. So that was good to hear. Uh, I would say one more thing. I totally agree that science is about knowledge, but I think spirituality is about wisdom, which is a knowledge that we can use to nurture our, uh, our existence as um, our kinship, our relationships. And I, by the way, I, don't, I, I, I object to you saying I, that calling that a concession. I'm just stating the truth. I didn't and, mean and, it and, sound pejorative. Yeah, and, and we're not ashamed or embarrassed by it. Uh, you know, science, I, I, I am against the idea that science has to explain, answer all the questions of the universe. I'm just not made for that. The, the exchange in the book is, is never less than, than respectful, but it's interesting that there's, a, there's an element of symmetry in some of the accusations is a strong word for it, but it, it, the accusations that you, you make about each other's approach, that, that neither is sufficiently open-minded or um, 
both are a bit fuzzy. Each of you uh, appeal to a higher truth um, at, at different points in the book. One of the things you also both say is that you think it takes courage to hold your position. That is, it takes courage to, to make the argument for spirituality. It takes courage to make the argument for science. Why, why is that? Why, why do you think it's, it requires bravery? It takes courage to be immune to criticism, which I've had a lot in my life because I've always kind of uh, aligned myself with the spiritual point of view, never denying scientific truth, but saying, can we use scientific truth for healing? The word healing is the same as the word holy. Uh, Healing, holy, wholeness, health uh, means a return to wholeness. And I think science is a fragmented uh, view at the universe. Uh, because it's always looking out there, but never asking who's doing the looking. And one of the things we discuss at length in the book, and I shall now borrow your word, concedes, um, because Leonard does concede towards the end of the book, that uh, uh, science cannot explain consciousness, uh, you know, which is the most fundamental uh, experience we have. And you know, every time I use the word, the word consciousness, Leonard, during the tour, has said, I don't know what that means, so I have to keep changing my definition of consciousness. Here's my latest definition of consciousness. (laughs) Consciousness is a shared awareness in which we experience ourselves, our relationships, and the world out there. And science is looking for consciousness in the brain, which is a good thing to do, but remember, you cannot experience consciousness objectively because consciousness is the observer, always. So you can't find the observer in the objects of your perception, including the brain. And therefore, spirituality is very important because it's about self-observation. As you're listening to me right now, just turn your attention to who's listening. Just try it this second. As you're listening to me, turn your attention to who's listening. We are now in a shared awareness. And in this awareness, we experience everything. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, imagination, our physical body, the world, and each other. We haven't answered the most fundamental question that has been there since the time of Socrates and before. Know thyself. I'd like to come back to the question of consciousness, but can you first, Dr. Mladenov, take on the question of why it takes courage to take a scientific approach? Yeah. Uh, Let me first put a little footnote, because... um, I think it's important to be precise, and what I say in the book is not that science cannot explain consciousness. I say it does not explain consciousness. In fact, cannot even right now define, we don't know how to define consciousness, but just for the record. <laughs> so, the, um, I don't know, I think that, I think, because I really think it is one of the issues in the book is one of precision. So, um, now in terms of courage, yeah, okay, I think, I think that it, the scientific point of view takes a lot of courage, because when I, 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 I've, that's just been reinforced in speaking to the audiences over the last few weeks. When I, if I tell you, you have no free will, who likes to hear that? Who out here thinks, wow, that's great, that, that, that is a, that's a human aspiration to have no free will? <laughs> or if I tell you, when you die, that's it, there's no life after death. Your loved ones are never coming back, they're nowhere. They've turned back to dust and to the molecules of the universe. Who wants to hear that? Nobody really wants to hear that. And to, as a scientist, to stand there and take those positions and say, but wait a minute, you know, it's okay, we, there's still meaning in life, we can still be humans, we can still have a full life, 
despite the fact that I believe physical laws govern everything that we do, that you know, I, I can feel that I have free will, and we can talk about that later. Uh, I, I, I don't step in front of a bus saying I don't have free will any, well, anyway, so why does it matter? But from the fundamental point of view, I do believe that we're all governed by physical laws, and so we don't, you know, so that everything that I do and all my decisions can be predicted by knowing the state of my system at a certain time, and, and that when those molecules disperse when I'm dead, there's no soul that's going to continue living. And I, it's things like that, I think, that take courage to, have your, to believe. It's very much easier to believe the other. Would you like to respond to anything that, that, that he just said? Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if we don't have free will, then forget about global warming and let's all be doomed to extinction. I think in every moment, our experience of the world is the choice we make. In every moment, your experience of the world is the choice you make. Now, I like to quote some physicists who um, um, Leonard may argue that they were not right, but there's some really pioneers in physics who said, not only do we have choice, but nature has choice. That the questions we ask of nature determine the behavior of nature. Heisenberg, um, we do not examine nature as it is, but nature as it responds to the questions we ask of it. So this free will is a huge issue uh, for me. Uh, forget about survival after death, because that involves a major discussion about our real identity and who we are. Um, I, I'd like to actually get ahead of ourselves a little bit. I'd like to come back to the, to the question of free will and maybe approach it by, by addressing one of the subjects. There are really four areas uh, that the book looks at. There's the cosmos, there's life, um, there's God, and there's mind the mind and the brain, um, which is the part I'd like to, to, to ask you about now. Um, because it, it kind of runs through the book, this, this for science, vexing question of, of consciousness and, and subjectivity. Um, and, and maybe we could make it a little bit concrete. Uh, one of the debates you have between the two of you is whether there is any separation between the physical brain and something else that we call mind. Um, uh, and Dr. Chopra answers yes, and Dr. Mladenov answers no. What is, okay, I mean, perhaps I'm oversimplifying, um, but I didn't use the word concession at least. Uh, <laughs> Notice that right after I said, please don't use that, he used it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Chopra, give us, give us a concrete example that demonstrates in your mind or your brain why these two things are in fact um, I believe separable. that the mind and the brain are actually the same thing. They are both expressions of a deeper underlying reality. Like, you know, quantum physics describes one aspect of the laws of nature. Classical physics uh, describes another set of the laws of nature. And yet we are still describing nature in both cases. So to give you an experience of what the mind is, uh, just... Imagine right now that you're looking at a beautiful sunset on the ocean. Can you see a picture? Well, there's no picture in your brain. There's electrochemical activity. This in science, in the consciousness field, is called the hard problem, which means we cannot explain raw experience. If I ask you to explain the experience of wetness and you said, H2O, it wouldn't mean anything. Knowing the formula H2O doesn't give me the experience of wetness or the quenching of my thirst. 
And so this is a very fundamental problem, by the way, in science, that science doesn't even have a model for understanding. Every thought that you have, and I'm not making this up now, when I said this 25 years ago, people ridiculed it, but today, any neuroscientist will tell you that every thought that you have, every emotion that you have, every memory that you have as a neural representation. By changing the thinking patterns, you can change neural networks. This involves the making of proteins, the replication and transcription of DNA into RNA and so on. So actually, the whole field of neuroplasticity and the whole field of what we call genetic indeterminism, turning on genes on and off through habits of thinking, behaving, relating, etc., show that your body symbolically represents what's happening in consciousness subjectively. So subjectivity comes first. When I asked you to imagine the sunset, you had an intention. And then you had the experience of the picture and you had a neurochemical firing at the same time. The question is, who is this that is having the intention? And Leonard's view is, it's the brain that has intention. I say no, intention, choice, insight, creativity, imagination are more fundamental aspects of consciousness that have representations as the mind, the subjective experience, and also as the brain, the objective experience. Dr. Mladenov, what has science shown us? What do we know experimentally about connection of the mind and the brain? Well, where we differ is that in, in, in science, there's really no room to say that the mind is anything other than just, and I don't mind saying just, takes courage, but I'll say it, <laughs> just a phenomenon of the physical brain, or as Deepak likes to call it, an epiphenomenon. He, doesn't, he likes to call it disparagingly. <laughs> but but it, it, see, what we've discovered over the last hundreds of years in science is that there are certain laws that, you know, they, they govern an apple falling, but the same laws govern the planets going around the sun, and now we see that they govern other stars, and they... You know, we, we, when we discovered quantum theory, we learned how we could describe all of chemistry through, through physics. And everywhere we've looked, everything in nature seems to follow the laws, and there's no room for the, for, for the exceptions for purpose to enter in or for anything other than the, than, the, than the raw laws of nature to guide how things develop. And when we look at the brain, when neuroscientists look at the brain, they don't understand the, the qualia or this hard problem that Deepak is mentioning, which is how do our conscious experiences arise? But they hope that we can eventually uh, discover how that happens. But even if we can't discover how that happens, it doesn't mean that it's outside the laws of science. It could be that it's just outside the power of the human brain. But for right now, what scientists are doing are, as they do, is they're, they're looking at very much more specific aspects, very specific and well-defined aspects of human uh, thought. Uh, you know, what happens in your brain when you recognize a person, when you recognize a concept? What happens when you have an idea? How does memory work? They, they have patients that have uh, electrodes inserted into their brains because of epileptic seizures, and they can do experiments on these and read single neurons and see how single neurons fire. For instance, every time they see a person sees Jennifer Aniston's face or, or even the, the word Jennifer Aniston in text, those neurons will fire. And they're starting to piece together from a lot of different angles how the brain works. And in, in all these cases, you know, they, they've never discovered any hint that it's not simply the physical workings of the neurons that correspond to the mental thoughts that somebody has. And I mean, one of the most dramatic, I don't want to go on too long, but one of the most dramatic experiments was on split-brain patients, split-brain 
patients are patients that, um, due to epilepsy, have the, uh, their brains sliced in half, separating the, the left and the right hemisphere, and leaving almost no communication between the two hemispheres. So it, that it's done because it's the only way it's to... It's done to control severe epileptic yeah. seizures, and, and apparently it's effective. And these people, if you meet them, you generally they, they seem fairly normal when you talk to them. But, of course, the, their language only comes from one side, usually the left side. But anyway, this experiment that I'm talking about, that the neuroscientist Christoph Koch wrote about um, in one of his books, a person that, that had had this surgery, and the, the therapist was asking, how many seizures have you had in the last two weeks? And, and so this person's uh, left hand went up and said three, and the right hand went, went up and said four. So the two sides of the brain were disagreeing. And I won't get into the details, but eventually they started fighting with each other, trying to hold one hand, trying to hold down the other hand. You know, I think it's very sad, but the conclusion that Christoph said, wrote about was that the, this shows that the, the mind and the brain, how really tied together they are, that cutting the person's brain in half made, gave that person become a person of two minds, two separate consciousnesses. And so it's experiments or it's observations like this that really lend credence to our belief that the, conscious, the phenomenon of consciousness in the brain, in, uh, in the mind, can be explained by, purely by the physical workings of the brain. I'm glad you used the word belief. Belief. Everything in science, by the way, I concede is a belief, okay? But, but it's a belief that is founded on observation and experiment and not just our ideas. May I respond to that, please? Okay, please, go ahead. The scientific method. Theory, experiment, observation. Theories are conceived in consciousness. Experiments are designed in consciousness. Observations are made in consciousness. And science does not yet explain consciousness. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> But not conceded. Um, uh, I'm going to open it up to you guys in just a second. So please start thinking about uh, questions you'd like to ask. Um, please, I will ask you to ask a question. Uh, this is the subject. This is the subject um, uh, that tends to, that a lot of us feel strongly about um, But I'd like to use this opportunity here as much from our guests as we can. I would like to ask one more question of, of both of you, though, and it's, it's, it's about really the problem of evil um, and the challenge that it poses to each of your worldviews. And I'd like to actually quote two passages from the book. Uh, and I'll go to you first, Dr. Chopra, but this, these are um, from Dr. Mladenov, who describes at one point your mother... Um, Uh, in her hometown in Poland when it was occupied by the Nazis, being made, to lead, to, uh, made with other, um, others of the town's Jews to kneel in the snow while a soldier walks up and down with a gun. And you write, he walked the row and every few steps leaned down, put his gun to someone's head and fired. The spiritual view says that my mother's survival was not random. It says my mother was passed over for a reason. Does this not imply that there was also a cosmic reason that those not passed over were slaughtered? Since most of the members of my parents' families were killed during the Holocaust, to me it is this spiritual explanation that feels cold and heartless. And then much later in the book, you come back to this issue, describing your experiencing witnessing the 9-11 attacks in lower Manhattan, and, and issue a direct challenge to Dr. Chopra, 
You say, if Deepak is right about a universal consciousness and that the universe is loving through us, then it must also be hating through us, murdering and destroying through us, doing all the things that humans do in addition to loving, including the acts that blew up my mother's faith in God. Deepak, you say, avoids talking about this dark side, but if the universe is working through each of us, then this universal connection must be a double-edged sword. How do you, how do you respond to that, Dr. Chopra? First of all, <clears throat> if consciousness is infinite, then it is set up for maximum diversity. Which infinite means excludes nothing. Okay? But the question of good and evil still remains. And I think here's a very simple thing that I live by, and that is every human being is doing what they can from their level of consciousness. And there are s- certain stages of development in consciousness. You know, even Abraham Maslow hinted at hierarchies of needs, but there are also hierarchies of development of consciousness. So you can come from a very primitive development of consciousness where you're always in the fight, flight, rage response. Uh, You can be at a level of consciousness where nothing but success matters, or you can be a level of consciousness where you're relating to people and love becomes an important thing, or creativity, or higher consciousness, or actually merging with the consciousness that you're a drop of. You know, Rumi says you're not just a drop in the ocean, you're also the ocean in the drop. So when I see Hitler or somebody like that, I see a very primitive stage of development of consciousness, uh, but I also see that as part of the collective psychosis that gives rise to a Hitler, because, you know, you don't have an isolated person like that unless the collective mindset is also, in a way, favoring it. So this does not excuse evil. It actually says to us that we have a responsibility, because we have free will, we have a responsibility to favor the forces of evolution, which means our kinship with each other and our kinship with the universe that we came from, which is experiential. Morality is not a set of rules and regulations. Morality is the undeniable experience of inseparability, love, compassion, truth, goodness, beauty, that comes from an understanding that I am connected. I relate experientially to the web of life. When I don't, then I automatically am evil. Dr. Mladenov, for your, for your worldview, and I, 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 really, I, I guess I should not presume that you don't have some faith, some religious faith yourself. You're silent on that question in the book. Um, uh, but how do you incorporate, how do you, how do you cope with the existence of horrible things in the world if, in fact, you see it all as, a, as, as kind of a random, a random walk in the end? Um, yeah, I, I don't like. I don't believe that I see everything as a random walk, and um, I know that in the book Deepak talks a lot about science says that everything comes from randomness, but that that's not quite um, precise. What, what, what really a scientist says is that everything comes from the laws of nature, without purpose. It's not the same as yes. saying randomness, but um, so in, in, you know, I'm not saying that evil in, in, in the world comes from randomness. It comes from evil people or from people who we would define as having uh, you know, a brain or a nervous system that doesn't have the same empathy and sympathy for other people or, or the same um, uh, social um, spirit that other human beings have. 
And you know, when I look at both, you know, I, human beings are both wonderful and and uh, very rewarding and um, and uh, amazing social creatures, and there are, they also have the opposite of all those things. And uh, humans in the wild, uh, from what I read, uh, regularly murdered each other far more often than we do today, and, and we've developed culture and uh, society to, kind of, to teach us and to get us under control, and a lot of this is the spiritual side. And I have to also say that I'm a big admirer of Deepak's teachings about uh, humanity and how people should treat each other. But, I, you know, I, I don't see, um, to me, it's not a really, a, you know, any comfort. It wouldn't be any comfort to say that evil, if I had a religious belief, uh, a biblical belief or some other religious belief, I'm not sure how that would comfort me to see that, you know, to explain evil in the world. I don't think religions ever did a very good job of explaining evil. And uh, they, that never appealed to me. I just take both sides of the human condition and hope for the best. <laughs> I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions. Um, please, sir, go ahead. Yes. Well, and when it comes to spirituality, the absence of proof is not the proof of absence. Do you believe at some future day there will be an opportunity to observe spirituality objectively, uh, physically, if you would, to bring the two uh, universes together, or are they, are they parallel universes that will never meet? Spirituality and the physical realm will, will be separate forever, or do you think at some point there may be proof of spirituality? Since uh, spirituality is about the observer, the observer cannot be observed except through self-awareness. The observer can be validated inferentially by looking at neural correlates. But you can never observe a raw experience. Okay? I can explain the correlates of the experience. Uh, wetness of water, quenching of thirst is H2O. Love and compassion correlates with oxytocin. But for you to experience love, you need to know nothing about oxytocin. Okay? It may validate that you know, oxytocin correlates with love. What good is that for you as a person? You know, anybody who's not educated still knows what love means to them. So the answer is no. Consciousness will never be observed objectively because it, it is always the observer. Well, kind of going back to that comment about how oxytocin, what does it do for you? What about your comment about the people who are evil, who are lacking that compassion that other individuals have? Could, could that improve them in some sense if you found some, you know, physical... Well, they, 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 I mean, they do study psychopaths and found uh, physical abnormalities in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I'm not remembering exactly what part of the brain, but, but there, there, is a, there are discrete... Uh, brain conditions that, that cause people to lack the empathy for other people so that they can go and just murder someone and feel no differently than you would stepping on an ant. Um, but I don't, you know, it doesn't, that, that, you know, making it a very, giving a very mechanical explanation, um, I'm sure it does not get very far for, for Deepak. I'll let him <laughs> but in a world, But in a world without, without, in a world without free will, though, Evil becomes so a physiological say, problem, well, doesn't it? Yeah, or yeah, medical, yeah. So there are people who, philosophers, who talk about what is morality in a world without free will. And you know, let me say that you know, in, in the grand design uh, I wrote with Stephen Hawking, 
we address that issue because, um, you know, we, as scientists, we, I think most scientists believe that there is no free will. You have to if you believe in the laws of, of physics, if you don't believe that there's something outside the laws of physics. But we also all know that we feel, I, I, I don't deny that I feel I'm making a decision before I do anything, right? So we call this an effective theory, a theory of psychology or a theory of yourself, that you feel you're making a decision, and it doesn't really take away from that feeling or that, from the practical point of view, there's no difference between saying you have free will or you don't have free will. The only thing that physicists say is you act as if you're making decisions if you have free will, but if, but if I knew enough about your, your state and the structure of your brain, I could have told you what decision you would have made. Okay, But I know it's a subtle difference, but uh, that's the difference we, distinction we draw. Can I respond to her question? Oxytocin will never get rid of evil, okay? Or understanding neuroscience will not get rid of evil. What will get rid of evil is what we know that people who are evil as adults were traumatized as children. I mean, the more you look at that, the more you realize that so-called evil people were very abused children. And it is a responsibility of society to look at those underlying causes to actually mitigate evil. And that requires, again, choice and free will. Yeah, I just, I just wonder, is it, is it possible that um, these two worldviews are not supposed to come together at any point? And the reason I say that is I was once talking to a military person, and they said he was bemoaning the fact that every time their scientist would, say, become more spiritual, like doing remote viewing or something that gave them a new consciousness, they would become lousy scientists because they would start trying to save humanity and save the world. And, and on a microcosmic scale, I just wonder, is that an example of we need both worldviews because without, you know, if everybody's trying to save the world in one part of the world and the other part, some people are, you might think of evil from one point of view to attack another, that we need both worldviews and they shouldn't come together because if there were no scientists left that were willing to ask hard questions and ignore the saving humanity aspect, that it might I don't not be see why science, I, I don't see the dichotomy. First of all, a lot of scientists are, just like anybody else, are very spiritual people. And, you know, I would think of it that, that let's, let's look at auto mechanics, okay? Does an auto mechanic have to concentrate on saving the world or not concentrate on saving the world, or is that really related? I mean, you can be an auto mechanic and want to save the world and not want to save the world, and you could still be a great auto mechanic either way. And, you know, most scientists are working, or scientists on the fundamentals of science, are working on issues that have no particular relation to the fate of the world. You know, you're, you're working on, say, string theory, or, you know, you, even if you're working on genetics, it may eventually, um, on the fundamentals of genetics, it may eventually have applications, but you're not, you know, you're not, unless you're working on very applied science, you're not working on a specific problem that is aimed at, at, at doing anything particular in the everyday world, and you can, you can still, you know, have whatever spiritual beliefs or political beliefs that, that you have, and and it doesn't really affect your, your day-to-day job. So I, I think that the idea that scientists are always, or for the most part, or it's inherent in, in, in your job as a scientist, that you're either working, you're pro or anti the world, you know, it's not really directly relevant. Uh, yes, a footnote and a question, uh, Dr. Chopra. It seems that when you invoke uh, oxytocin to explain uh, love uh, or, you know, well, this person doesn't need to know what oxytocin is. They can just experience love. You give away the battle. But listening to you, I'm reminded of what a person told me a few weeks ago, uh, that if uh, God 
uh, wanted me to believe in her, she would have to make a better argument than so far has come forth. And so the question for uh, a supernatural spiritualist uh, like yourself is, what sort of proof do you have for divinity? First of all, oxytocin is not love. Oxytocin is the biological correlate of the experience of love. Before I, uh, and also I don't use the word supernatural. In my book, I've never used it in my uh, speech. I don't think, I think it's miraculous enough that we exist. And the natural is as good as it gets. The fact that I exist is a perpetual surprise, which is a spiritual experience for me. What, I don't believe in some god as a dead white male out there. Or female. Or a female, because you use the word. I believe in God as the consciousness within me, the observer. I believe that I exist. And before I can ask questions of God, I must ask myself, who am I? Because God depends on me to ask the question. Okay, just like, you know, we hear this phrase, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's very misleading. I am, therefore I think. I am, therefore the universe is. I am, therefore I can ask the question of God. That's the only question worth answering. Who are you? And if you stay long enough observing yourself, if you stay long enough observing your thoughts, your feelings, your imagination, your images, your body, if you stay long enough observing your connection to each other, there's an insight there that, uh, that is not scientific proof that can be measured as data in units of mass and energy, but there's a scientific truth, scientific truth, subjectively, that everything is because consciousness is. Because if there is a universe outside of consciousness, you'll never know it. There was a question back here. Yes, good morning. Um, it's apparent that we have two people, uh, excuse me, three people on the stage of higher intellectual capacity. But most people live their lives unquestioningly. So my question is, are the human beings not uh, really supposed to be asking and, and finding answers to these higher intellectual issues? For example, um, you know, most people in the, in the world are not, capable of considering these very high issues and difficult issues of God. Should there be an expectation that the average person should be treated differently on their death based upon their intellectual capacity to consider issues such as God and perhaps specifically even more difficult issues such as the prophets? Please. As a physician, when I worked in an emergency room, you know, I saw death all the time. And I saw how people reacted to a diagnosis of cancer or uh, how they reacted to a heart attack and they knew that they were dying. And it was, it's a very depressing and very agonizing experience to see somebody go through first denial, then severe anger at why me, and then severe frustration, ultimately resignation and desperation into the experience of death. And this was my experience working as an emergency room physician. On the other hand, I also come from a tradition 
where I've seen my own father, who was 80, 83 when he passed on, was a cardiologist, trained in Western medicine, described high-altitude pulmonary edema, got published, the whole works, but who lived a very spiritual life, um, in only towards the end of his life got intellectually involved in the kind of questions we are discussing. But his life was simple. His motivations were love and compassion and treating patients in a way that they felt cared for. And he always said there are four ways of knowing the truth. One is through stillness. The other is through love. The third is through service. And the fourth is through intellectual understanding, but the intellectual understanding usually never gets anywhere. So just be simple, learn to be quiet, learn to be loving, and learn to be of service, and you'll have peace. On the day he died, and this is no, uh, you know, uh, this is a correlation, not a cause-effect thing. The day he died was on the day that uh, President Bush was inaugurated. And he was watching the program in India, and this was the second inaugural ceremony. He looked at my mother. He said, I don't think I want to live anymore. And uh, and says, give give my love to the kids. I'm going to go into meditation. He closed his eyes. He winked at my mother. He did this, and he was gone in peace. Okay, that's a tradition, by the way, in India. It's called Mahasamadhi, the big meditation. And it is totally in peace. We live in this culture right now where nobody dies at home. What we call the prolongation of life is the prolongation of suffering. And it's a business. And it is a business because we have gotten away from real values into saying that science is all that off. You know, science will save you. Science will conquer death one, one day. And then we'll be all doomed to eternal senility. Dr. Malana, do you want to say anything about um, the, the satisfactions of the intellectual struggle with these questions, if they exist? I mean, you were saying that the fourth element of the inquiry is, is, is intellectual and, and a little bit pointless because it never gets anywhere. And I wondered if you care to address that. Well, I, I think that's why I was attracted to science, because in, 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 the, in the philosophical and spiritual realm... It, it can be hard to make progress, but in science, you know, you, there's nothing more rewarding than doing a calculation and seeing that an experimentalist gets that answer, or, 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 that, you, or that as a result of your mathematics, you predict this, and this actually happens. And, and so, you know, that, that, yeah, I think that in, in, um, one of the nice things about science is that we, we can uh, get concrete uh, a word on whether what we say uh, is valid or not. Whereas in the, in, in the meaning of life, it's a, uh, it's a discussion. <laughs> I'd like to sh- uh, share a story that I first heard from a Western philosopher uh, who went to India and he was uh, walking by the Ganges and he met this uh, great philosopher and he looked miserable. And he said, you look really unhappy. And he said, yes, for 40 years I wondered the origin of thought. I don't know where thought comes from. And also, I don't understand where thought disappears after I've had it. And so I've struggled 40 years. I've meditated, witnessed myself, done everything, yoga, everything. Still don't know the answer, so I'm miserable. So then he walked uh, another 100 yards, and he found this old fisherman. 
fisher woman really who was playing with her children they were making sand castles and they were laughing and dancing and really happy and he said to the woman i want to ask you a question do you know where thought comes from and do you know where thought disappears after you've had it and she didn't even understand the question she said leave me alone i'm having a good time i'm happy <laughs> so <clears throat> you know he went back to the philosopher the great sanyasi the great sage he said you should be ashamed of yourself you know spent 40 years trying to figure out where thought comes from and here's this woman 100 yards downstream she's never given it a thought and she's the happiest woman in the world and the philosopher said i don't want that happiness some of us don't want that happiness james we've time for one more question over here james over here last question so uh As someone with an interest in both science and spirituality, my question for you is: Do you see the gap between the two narrowing with time, as our understanding of spirituality perhaps improves as we look across cultures and as scientific methods and tools improve, or do you think they will forever live apart? Well, I, I think in our uh, current society, I, I don't see the gap closing at all. You know, and I, I think there are many people who's interested is to keep it open because uh to get elected it's quite uh quite one of one of the easy uh ways is to uh uh attack or or pick a side in science or religion and to push them against each other and uh you know to say god told me to run or whatever i mean there's a lot there, it, it's uh, you know god told me to to solve the hydrogen atom i don't <laughs> we we don't say that in physics but but um <laughs> maybe we should <laughs> um So I you know I I have to say I'm science will never you know convince people of its validity uh, above their spiritual beliefs I I think that you know we can say that you know today we, we you know we have tremendous wonders of science you can put on your um your phone and find out exactly where you are and where the sushi bar is that you're going to or uh you know this this uh discussion can be seen in China where I get emails from got an email from Ethiopia the other day I was watching you on the Pierce Morgan show and I mean you know we can um shoot lasers at the moon I mean there's science is not I mean science will always come up with new wonders but there's enough wonders now to convince people if they want to if you know they want to accept science that science is a certain kind of truth and yet people still believe in creationism that the earth is 6000 years old and what not So I don't think that the that that science is going to is going to change that gap. But you know what I hope for and what I hope with the book is to uh, explain to people a little better what the scientific way of looking at the world is, what the scientific uh, methodology is, and I'm hoping in 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 our discussions to to make the point that uh that's you know scientists are not against understanding love, compassion, truth um or evil um or you know f- understand the role of those play in our lives and where we fit in the universe and but it's just don't look to science you know that that's where you should look to spiritual um endeavors for your answers and look to science to tell you you know when is the tide going to come in and 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 what's going to happen with the sun and and I think if if we can learn to um not to 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 pit the two against each other and to value both equally that we need spirituality in our lives we need morality we need ethics we need love we need connections with other people and it's also good to have a, a knowledge of the physical environment we live in then that you know, that's the best hope for us and i, I would like to remind dr chopra of the healing rhythms yes 
Thank you. Uh, just want to address the four big problems that humanity faces right now, okay? One is climate change. It's a fact. Uh, and according to everything we know, uh, we have 100 years to do something about it, and we must exercise our free will to do it. Um, and we have the scientific knowledge to address that problem. The second big problem is social injustice and economic injustice. We have the human resources to create wealth. The third is war and terrorism and violence. And we understand the root causes of violence today. And the fourth is eco-destruction. The gift of science is that we have technologies already to address these problems. I met Raj Datta here in the audience earlier. He's got a dish out there, he says, that's capturing ultraviolet rays and uh, creating renewable energy. Um, we have technologies to bring back near extinct species. We have the understanding of what it would take to bring about economic empowerment throughout the world. And we have science to thank for it. But science devoid of that spiritual experience will not do it. Science that is value-based, um, not in its methodology, but it's in intentions. Um, because the scientific methodology survives on scientific methodology. You, you make those discoveries because you're tied in. But science that is based on an intention that nurtures our being and our connection and that values life can save this planet. Have we ended on a point of agreement there and overlap? I would say yes. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.